Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. How might we understand the origins and the impact of current controversies raging in Britain over changing interpretations of British colonial history? Corinne Fowler has close personal experience of those controversies. As professor of colonialism and heritage at the School of Museum Studies at the University of Leicester, she directed Colonial Countryside, National Trust Houses Reinterpreted, a child-led history and writing project guided by a team of historians, and in 2020, she co-authored an audit of peer-reviewed research about National Trust properties' connections to empire. The resultant publications gained intense public attention, winning praise from many historians and teachers, but opprobrium from some government ministers and Tory MPs. In today's podcast, Professor Fowler reflects on that controversy in a talk delivered in June 2022 at Queen Mary University of London as this year's Raphael Samuel Memorial Lecture. Drawing on her own experience, she considers how those working on British colonial history, whether students or activists, academics or museum and heritage professionals, can respond effectively to fraught public discussions. And she provides a preview to her forthcoming book, The Countryside, Ten Walks Through Colonial Britain. Her talk is titled Approaching British Colonial History During the Culture War. Well, I called this talk Approaching British Colonial History, uh, which sounds like I'm approaching it with trepidation and uh, a bit hesitantly, and uh, as if it's going to come and bite me, but, but it actually has... Uh, it does, and it will always keep coming back to bite, so uh, it, maybe it's quite an appropriate title, even though it sounds so tentative uh, and so on. I, I want to start talking about the challenges of researching and communicating research about this history, first of all, but then I want to move on in the second part of the talk to approaches uh, which I think are, are useful. I have recently been reading the sermons of Martin Luther King, which have made very interesting reading in the context of the culture war. And the thing that it really made me realise and think about a lot is that the culture war is nothing new. Uh, this, this is what we call it now, but it's been going on for a long time in different ways, in different places, in different forms. And um, Reading Martin Luther King's work, his sermons, it really makes you realise that a lot of the phenomenon that he's discussing are really familiar. They really feel familiar. And you're right in the middle of culture war territory when you read his work. Uh, of course, in the US context, Slavery, in particular, is a much more recent phenomenon, and abolition happened in the 1860s, and so uh, obviously it's much more recent than abolition in the British context. But reading his his book now, you do uh, not his book; it's just a collection of his sermons. 
it is a kind of handbook for uh, looking into the past and for dealing with and communicating aspects of the past. It's, he had some wonderful suggestions which I personally find very useful. Um, he talks, for example, about the importance of tough-mindedness, which he defines as having critical independence. And that's what education and universities are for, to, to think independently and not to prejudge the facts. He talks about prejudices, prejudging things before you see the evidence. And of course, that, that is a very valuable quality. And he also quotes from from the Bible, an expression, be ye wise as serpents, uh, but innocent as doves. And he has a whole sermon about this, which I really recommend, it's absolutely brilliant. And what he does there is he talks about the, the, the wisdom of serpents is apparently a contradiction to the, tender, the idea of um, uh, being innocent as doves. But you cannot be tough-minded without being tender-hearted. If you're going to be effective in communicating sensitive history, you have to understand that this is a very emotional topic. Uh, it's a very sensitive matter. Um, he talks about many other things, uh, altruism, thinking about the widest possible benefit of research uh, is, is something that comes to mind, and also courage and the importance of, of courage. He's got a lot of interesting things to say, <laughs> a manual for life apart from anything else. But um, I came across uh, another essay which I think is absolutely fascinating to read in this context also. Um, by Salman Rushdie, which could have been written yesterday, it was written in 1982, uh, The New Empire Within Britain. And of course, Britain has its very own unique brand of historical denial. You know, somebody was saying in a conference yesterday that they are, um, you know, that Britain has this kind of very organised forgetting of British colonial history. And you might want to call it a sort of miseducation because of the paucity of general knowledge about basic facts about empire. You know, what was the East India Company? What was the Royal African Company? What was uh, the South Sea Company? And what was the South Sea Bubble all about? Uh, how did the slavery business work? These just basic things that, that we need to know in order to understand uh, our modern society apart from anything else. Um, and one of the issues we have in Britain is that history, colonial history, of course, has been told in a very partisan way and a very partial way. In fact, there's a lot of silence about it. I know that everyone's education was different, but I personally made it all the way to university without really knowing much about the British Empire. So that's quite an astonishing feat on behalf of the part of the education system. And I know lots of people always nod when I tell them I list all the elements of my history education. So for me, it's been a big journey over, over many years. And it's some, uh, a journey that everyone uh, takes and starts at different points. So, um, one of the problems of this miseducation or this gap is that a lot of information, for example, connecting country houses with various aspects of the British Empire feels very unfamiliar, or it did feel very unfamiliar to people. And that 
feels like people are making it up, that this isn't evidence at all, that people are just, just inventing this stuff. And that's how often it was presented at the most sort of hostile period of, of newspaper coverage of the National Trust Report, for example. But um, with this, uh, getting back to Salman Rushdie, I wanted to mention him because if I, I can't read this quote out loud, as you'll see why, um, but I think it is really, really useful to read it because he puts his finger on the attitudes of imperialism and the legacy of those attitudes being, of course, modern-day racism, which is still denied and not fully acknowledged in, in, in many domains, even though all the evidence shows us that racism exists and is alive and kicking in, in British society today. One of the uh, predominant discussions that's still going on is about how we study empire and how we talk about the British Empire, and it's quite common for uh, politicians in particular to advocate the, the balance sheet approach to empire and this is, is a, a pretty easy to parody in some ways but it's important to understand that we don't research this topic or read about it or talk about it in a, in a vacuum it's a, a living breathing thing that means something we're not just talking about bold facts and um, the, the really, really crude, crudest manifestation of ideas about the balance sheet is that fundamentally Indian colonization was good and slavery was bad. I mean, I'm being really crude there, but it is, you know, there is some truth to it that there is a kind of popular feeling that that, that was the case. And, and of course, um, it's really important to ask questions, as many people have, quite recently, Satnam Sangera. Um, what, uh, you know, who gets to decide what was good and bad? Who judges what was good or bad? Whose voices do we hear and find in the historical record? Whose voices have we lost? Um, where is the historical authority? Where does the interpretative authority lie? So these are really important questions and one additional thing that history teachers raise all the time now is one of safeguarding. Because if you have a generation of pupils growing up deprived of uh, a, a detailed and sound knowledge of the history of the British Empire, then you are depriving that cohort of pupils of the contextual information that they need in order to understand multicultural Britain as it is today. It's actually a kind of psychological deprivation because you're not giving them the information that they need. And this is something that teachers are increasingly concerned about. And this is partly why I was interested in working with pupils. I used to be a teacher myself. and. Um, this is why I was interested in working with pupils on the Colonial Countryside Project. The extreme example of this, this is my personal favourite, is that some people don't want to talk about this history at all. And um, yeah, my favourite one is the leader of the Common Sense Group of MPs, John Hayes, who called for the English Heritage Report on the slavery connections of various heritage sites in its care to be shredded 
which, as I've said elsewhere before, is quite an interesting metaphor to use in a digital age. But uh, this, this is what he, he called for it. He, he actually, <laughs> it was a gem of a quote for the, for the journalists, I think. Um, these are some of my colonial countryside pupils. I worked with a hundred of them across the country. And this is a group of colonial countryside pupils presenting their work to an auditorium of heritage and museum professionals in the British Museum Annual Conference. And one of the things that they did was that they stood up and they said what that history means to them personally, why it matters to them to study the history, and they told stories about it. And one of the pupils was explaining that she'd gone to Charcot Park, which is a National Trust property. She'd seen a miniature portrait of Tipu Sultan, and it had taken her on this amazing journey into British colonial history. And she learned, she spoke to her Indian relatives, she studied it and she ended up making her parents take her to Tipu Sultan's summer palace. And then she talked in her presentation about historiography, the different ways in which British historians are obsessed with Tipu Sultan's uh, connection with the, you know, uh, conflict with the East India Company. And then Indian historians are completely interested in other aspects. So it was a really, really interesting occasion. But one of the things that she <coughs> said is, uh, was quite strident in saying, well, you don't have to look at British colonial history if you don't want, but you can't stop me from studying it. Uh, I end my book with that quotation uh, because I think it's, it's really important to think about what this, this generation is, how they are different from all generations over the age of 50. They're fundamentally different. And this is one, one that does the rounds quite a lot, but it is one of my personal favorites. Here is an exam paper about uh, slavery in, in the US. Um, the question, what increased the need for slaves? And uh, the, the, uh, <laughs> the child has written on the paper, those people did not need slaves. So obviously the sort of, uh, the, the rather partisan view and uncritical view of history does not glide so easily past the eyes of this generation and, and it never will. Uh, that's my experience of working with the colonial countryside pupils. History teachers are also now in a dilemma because they've been told to use the balance sheet approach to empire. So what do they do in their classrooms? Because they're not very happy with it because they're historians and it doesn't really make sense historically. Um, so one of the things they're worried about is teaching British colonial history through the lens of guilt and shame. It's a, it's a real problem, it's a real issue. And um, here is, um, the, on the top there, is an example of what one history teacher has done to try and get round this problem. Uh, you know, how have historians worked in the past? And he's got an example of Niall Ferguson's book on, on empire. And then he explains that Actually, it's really unhelpful. It doesn't advance historical understanding to use the balance sheet approach to empire. And that colonization meant different things to different people in different places, in different phases of, of history. It's culturally, um, geographically, and um, uh, 
varied and historically varied. So uh, it's not very helpful at all. But you can see that somebody has very cruelly parodied the balance sheet approach in that tweet below. Uh, how many miles of railway does one Bengal famine weigh? Um, bit irreverent, that. But um, just moving on to talk briefly about, because I'm still on the challenges part of this talk, uh, the, colonial, uh, the, sorry, the National Trust report, which was mentioned in the introduction. Um, the National Trust report is just an audit of peer-reviewed research that already existed, so that we put it all together in one place, and then there is a kind of gazetteer listing all National Trust properties which have colonial connections that we know about. There's an awful lot more, but it found that a third of National Trust properties at least have quite substantial and often multiple connections to various aspects of the British Empire. Um, and the reason it was needed was that the, the, even though, and even in cases where this history was centrally relevant to those houses, it was not necessarily, with a few honourable exceptions, spoken about or included in the narrative. And that's a problem, because if it's relevant, why wouldn't you talk about it? You're just avoiding it. You know, there's a kind of curatorial responsibility, and um, this is part of the, um, the, the reason it was needed, it was useful. Um, why is this kind of work so triggering? <laughs> Um, there are many, many answers to this, and I've looked into it a great deal and, and thought about it a great deal. But uh, at country houses in particular, obviously they're associated with pastoral, they're associated with soothing things in, in many ways, and they had become associated because of the National Trust and these big heritage, historic housing organisations with um, retreats, leisure, you know, walking your dog, take it a good day out, you know, whatever, all of those things. Um, but they always historically were associated with retreat and getting away from the city. And that's why um, in an earlier session with some students, I was mentioning the importance of Raymond Williams' book, The Country and the City, because he explains how this all operated. And of course, in many cases, the uh, illusion that these, these rural places, these beautiful pastoral idylls, were separate from the global workings of empire, well, it, it was an illusion. It was, uh, it, a lot of this was repatriated wealth, uh, made to look respectable and converted into land ownership and so on. So still on the challenges, uh, this is just one of many examples. This is where my hard-won reputation flashed in front of my eyes when I saw this article near the beginning of a year of onslaught, uh, a newspaper onslaught. Um, and um, but as you can see, I'm perfectly okay. I'm all familiar. Um, National Trust accused of bias in study of colonial history. And um, all, all, the, all the students here can put their... Um, their sort of evidence radar on here because it says the National Trust has been accused, it doesn't say by who, it's a typical journalistic trick, of using a team of politically partial academics, they're, talk, they're mixed up, they're talking about the uh, Colonial Countryside Project, 
to identify the colonial history of its properties, and here is their evidence. Um, the team is led by Corin Fowler, a historian at the University of Leicester, who wrote the book Green Unpleasant Land. You don't need to read it, read the title, and that's the evidence that this is a biased historian. Um, obviously, I thought of that title a long time before I got dragged into a major news story. Um, and then um, Katie Donington, who's one of this country's most respected historians and a very important part of the Colonial Countryside Project. Um, another member of the team who researches transatlantic slavery created a video for the Museum of London Docklands last year highlighting the colonial history of the slave owner Robert Milligan. She recently shared the video after the museum announced that it had removed a statue of Milligan. So it, she, when she tries to inform and do her public historian bit, she tries to inform the public and that's just evidence of terrible bias. So there you are, now you know. And um, finally, on the challenges, um, <laughs> This is Jacob Rees-Mogg talking about the National Trust report in Parliament and saying that it was denigrating British history and so on, and um, getting really, really annoyed about it. The National Trust report was, of course, a big threat to the status quo in the sense that the norm was silence about historic houses' connection to the British Empire. And so um, it, it was very much a sort of challenge to that, that way of doing things, to that silence. And um, the important thing uh, that I have really learned about populist governance and populist approaches to politics is that one of the strategies that's used is to create a sense of kind of moral panic or perceived threat which you then are going to come and solve and you know you have to rally around to defend British history in this case from these enemies of the people and um, this is a, a strategy that's you know sort of tried and tested over over centuries but um, it, it, it was um, very triggering for a lot of people and I have learned a lot about why it was so are so triggering and uh, some of the reasons I've already covered. But uh, this person here, Northern Bloke on Twitter, um, he says, don't forget the empire played a huge part in ending slavery, but the woke won't accept this, enjoy anything to tear down Britain. I, I mean, I just don't know where you start with um, that kind of level of misunderstanding of uh, British colonial history, but um, I think it's important to understand that if you're not an historian, you are not resourced to know whether this is accurate, whether this is evidence-based, or whether that is accurate, or whether that is evidence-based. That's why smearing the people who produce the history is such an effective tactic. Or sort of, uh, there's nothing wrong with with challenging interpretation, uh, but but um, it is a, a real problem and it is a challenge. But um, I did uh, receive hate mail, you know, obviously, when there's uh, articles in the Daily Mail, there's an awful lot of people that read it, so I did receive a lot of hate mail, as well as chocolates, flowers, and, you know, uh, lots of lovely emails. And I did reply to some of my hate mail, uh, because I wanted to understand why uh, people were being triggered by it, and I learned a lot 
from responding to people. I mean, first of all, they nearly fell off their chairs, I think, when I did answer something, when they started off by swearing at me um, and saying horrible things. But uh, I did engage with them respectfully, and after, generally, after an exchange of, of two or three emails, there was, you know, they were wishing me well, and it was a good exchange, and we talked about the history itself, and the evidence, and all this kind of thing, and how they had... Uh, you know, which article they'd read and what, what, where the evidence was, you know, this sort of thing. But I think as, as historians in particular, you know, I, I myself am publicly funded, all my education was publicly funded, I'm one of the last who came through that gate, and uh, I feel that, uh, you know, my role is to be a resource, and that's what historians are for, to resource public discussions with, with evidence and to make the case for this kind of historical research. And all that matters ultimately is the safe passage of that research into the public domain. So, I'm sort of coming now more towards how um, all of this has been a masterclass and in, in informing my approach to historical research. Um, one of the biggest objections to talking about British colonial history is known as what aboutery. You know, what about the factories? What about the oppression of uh, white factory workers? What about the child labour? What about indentured labour? And all of these questions are actually really important questions. They're not a, a, a reason not to talk about British colonial history, but I started asking myself, well, okay, what about it? Um, let, let's, let's go there and let's think about the ways in which working class history, which people are not that knowledgeable about, and you don't get that much of it in the education system, you get a bit about the Industrial Revolution, and you know, all of that is familiar, but how is working class history connected to colonial history? And of course it's connected in so many ways, it is very interwoven. So. Um, one of the things I've become increasingly interested in is historical research which is being conducted into things like copper, you know, extraction of things, copper, ironworks, steam power, factory labour, uh, wool production, and how these sorts of things um, are also agricultural work, weavers, all of these things, and all of this history is intertwined with British colonial history. Also, labour history, um, connections between, say, slave ownership and the Highland clearances. There's some brilliant work on that at the moment. Anyway, so this is the book I'm writing now. I've very nearly finished it. I'm, I'm about to hand it in. And it's called The Countryside, Ten Walks Through Colonial Britain. Uh, I, I, I just bring together all my passions, you know, walking the countryside, history, and um, literature as well, and art, the arts as well. And my approach in this book is very much a response to the culture war dynamic and this is the approach that I think is most useful for me to take in my own research just now. But what I do, as the title implies, is I've, I've taken ten walks through different regions of Britain with people who have ancestral connections to empire to talk about what that history means at a human level and to uh, what, what it means to the people I'm walking with personally, 
but also uh, to have a conversation, not an argument, about what that landscape means to the, the person. You know, they all chose particular landscapes that meant a lot to them. And this is Brian Campbell, who's Scotland's first Caribbean Heritage SNP councillor. And he was one of the ones who was responsible for Glasgow apologising for slavery recently. And one of the things I want to mention about Graham, again thinking about what this history means at a human level, is that uh, he wanted me to go on the way to Jura, which is where I walked to him. He wanted me to go to Inverary Castle, and we stood in front of Inverary Castle, and we talked about the Campbell clan gathering, and he said, the Campbell clan gathers every year, and he laughed and he said, they don't invite me. We did have a laugh about it, but at the same time, it's a very serious matter because everyone who has ever lived in that castle, from the Campbell family, they know their lineage, they know their family tree, they know every detail of it, they know every uh, relation. And Graham Campbell has been deprived of that because of the slavery business and his family's connection to slavery history. He doesn't know his family lineage, uh, half of it. And it's a really painful to him not to know that. And it's something that takes a great deal of expertise to piece together. But for many people in his situation, it is a void which will never, ever be filled. And we all know what family history means to us and, and what uh, deprivation that really is and how personally felt that that is. Literary history is also of a massive interest and I walked with Ingrid Pollard through the Lake District from Grasmere and this is Ingrid walking along in her bright red coat, she always wears bright colours. She's currently up for the Turner Prize so I really hope that she wins it because she's so brilliant. But um, she has a really interesting relationship with Wordsworth. And she has walked in the lakes for many decades, but she noticed, obviously, that all of the postcards and the way that the lakes were marketed, it never had black people in these postcards. So she created her own postcard a few decades ago called Worsworth Heritage, and the caption says, after reaching several peaks, Miss Pollard's party stops to ponder on matters of history and heritage. So I thought she would be, in fact she asked uh, if we could walk in the Lake District, um, it was her, her choice of location. Um, and the interesting thing about Wordsworth is you can look at Wordsworth the Poet, and people have written about every aspect of Wordsworth the Poet, but if you look at Wordsworth the Businessman, you get a very different perspective on Wordsworth, uh, because he is a brilliant example of a family and the, the writing circle, the Wordsworth and their writing circle, who tried but failed to make money in various aspects of colonial business. Um, and, and I'll just um, mention a few. You can see Ingrid's looking a little bit more informal there than Wordsworth with her ice cream. She bought me one as well. I had one then when I was taking that photograph. But um, all three of 
the Wordsworths, um, the, so William Wordsworth, his father and his grandfather, worked for men who owned plantations or were very engaged with the colonial business and investment. Uh, and and um, they were all screwed over <laughs> by those people, by the way. Um, but the brother of William Wordsworth, and I won't go into too much detail because I've spoken about this before, was an East India Company captain, and that's a painting of his ship which sank off Weymouth and he died with, along with a couple of hundred other people who were on the ship. And um, this was a massive seismic event for the Wordsworth family. It affected Wordsworth as a poet, it affected his development, he wrote many poems about it, he was very personally affected by it, as was the rest of the family. And um, it, it also, um, as I say, informed his development as a poet, but beyond this, he had many connections with uh, those who were involved in anti-slavery activities, such as the Clarkson family, so he, he was um, friends with the Clarksons, and Thomas Clarkson in particular. Uh, but it's a very complicated story, that, because although he wrote anti-slavery poems, he wouldn't distribute, for example, leaflets by Thomas Clarkson about which were anti-slavery leaflets, and, and it was partly to do with his own patron who owned plantations and so on. But his, the women in the Wurzer family, uh, his immediate circle, his wife and his wife's sister, invested in Mississippi bonds. So there's a whole story about that. And they, they didn't make money in that either. They, they lost money on that too. And of course, the money that they invested in the East India Company voyage went down with the ship, although they got it back on the insurance. And I also should mention that Wesworth really likes, liked gingerbread. And um, that gingerbread is connected to colonial history in a fascinating way because the ginger came through from, from mostly from Jamaica through Whitehaven Port which is on the edge of Cumbria and the Lake District and so I did do a walk along Whitehaven Coast which is managed by the National Trust. The thing about Whitehaven Coast is that it's full of it's coal and it's got coal seams running a long, long, long way along that coast. I love this walk, I really recommend it to anyone. Um, and the interesting thing about Whitehaven is its position. So it's in the northwest of England and it not only made a very convenient route for the coal to be shipped from Whitehaven port to Dublin, but it was a brilliant way of going across the Atlantic over the Northern Ireland and avoiding the enemy French and Spanish ships. So it was strategically very important port. And of course, that ended up with it being Britain's second biggest importer of tobacco. And in 1688, so really early, the Customs House was built, uh, expanded because they said, we, you know, for our plantation trade, you know, we need more. Uh, more space uh, to to deal with all this these imports. Um, but if you look at a picture of the harbour there, it's reflected this history in the um, the sort of built environment there because you've got the inner port, uh, which is for the shallow bottom coal ships, 
and you've got the outer port for the deep-bottomed transatlantic ships. And that port also, because of that transatlantic slave uh, trade, became the fifth biggest slave trading port for a short while, for about 40 years. So it's a really, really interesting history. And all around there, the tobacco profits were in reinvested in things which don't appear to have anything to do with colonial history at all. So ironworks, snuffworks, glassworks, a, a turnpike road to improve the uh, inland trade, and also um, a sugar house, and they also sold rum there as well. So it's really, really interesting history. Now the person I walked with on this walk is called Peter Carlu, he's a writer, and um, I commissioned him for, uh, to do a piece on Speak Hall for the Colonial Countryside project, and I asked him, you know, what how do you feel about walking through this landscape? Because he was the only person I walked with that I felt seemed a bit uneasy in the landscape. And um, he was wearing that red bag there, and he said, oh, you know, that's my city bag. And, you know, sort of cling to it. And um, I asked him what he, he thought of that, the landscape, and he said, this is what he came back with, it's absolutely typical Peter Carlin. He said, the African continent was robbed and the fingerprints of the English countryside are all over the crime scene. No amount of warm beer, nuns on bicycles and thatched roofs can obscure that. So I always keep my hand on my wallet when I hit the green hills. <laughs> um, he, uh, yeah, he, he's got a lot of really interesting things to say about that. I mean, the, the reference to nuns on bicycles and warm beer is a uh, reference to John Major, who's, that's his kind of characterisation of the countryside as he remembers it. I don't know if anyone knows where this is. Has anyone ever been to this house? It's Seasoncut Manor in the Cotswolds and it's a Mughal style palace in Cotswold Stone. Absolutely beautiful place. And I went here with the historian and curator Raj Pal. Um, and he's pictured there with the owner of the house, Edward Peake. And this is um, another way of bringing out the unique regional histories of empire because this house was uh, commissioned by a pair of brothers called uh, Charles Cockrell and John Cockrell. And they took two completely different career routes through the East India Company. So one of them was uh, took the military route and he fought in lots of battles. And the other one took the financial routes and he had an agency house which allowed all the uh, British people in India to convert their Indian money and Indian wealth into money back home. So it's a really, really interesting history. But again, it's important to think about what this history means. I mean, the, uh, the owner of the house standing on the right there is quite a good custodian of the house because he's really interested in its history. He collects all the historical information he can and he makes sure that his volunteers tell everybody that East India Company history of, of the house. Uh, another walk that I did was, was in Dorset uh, with Louisa Ajoa Parker, another writer, and um, she has some really interesting things to say about the countryside. She's an expert in rural racism and this is partly connected to her own experience of it. And she's also a poet, as I said, and 
When she used to make beds in the, um, a guest house in Lyme Regis, which has a very strong connection to the slavery business, uh, she was reminded of colonial history and uh, its legacy of, of racism and inequality. And she wrote this in a, her poem, I could be an African girl brought back two centuries ago from Jamaican plantations by a trader. My master is mulatto child, in fact. I'll skip through a few more examples of, um, of this connection between working class history and the history of empire, and then I'll, I've got to kind of round off. Um, but these are the, uh, the toll puddle martyrs represented at the top there. Yeah, this is one of the most important stories in British labour history, that in the 1830s, this amazing group of men formed an agricultural workers' union, and one of them, James Hammett, uh, was sent, uh, they were all exiled for this crime, they were sent to the uh, British, uh, British penal colony in Australia and then one was sent to Tasmania. And one of them, James Hammett, was sent to the farm of the man on the left who is Edward Eyre, who anyone who knows about colonial history will know that he was, became the governor of Jamaica later on. So he worked on this farm and had a real hard time. It was a horrible life, uh, absolutely awful. And eventually he went back to Tolpuddle when his penal sentence, colony sentence, was over. And um, Edward Eyre went on to become the governor of Jamaica. He was presided over the, one of the worst atrocities ever, the Morant Bay Rebellion. And he was recalled as governor. But the interesting thing about these two men is that James Hammett died in the local workhouse and Edward Eyre never got prosecuted for executing hundreds of people um, on his watch and uh, he retired with a colonial pension in a little Devonshire village. So it's really, really interesting uh, juxtaposition. There's a lot more to it. So I just want to finish off with one more example and then I'll kind of sum up. That this is in Hampshire, this is um, an English heritage property, Northington Grange, which belonged to Alexander Baring. You'll all have heard of the Baring Bank and the collapse of the Baring Bank, but at one point they were known as one of the five great powers of Europe, um, you know, Germany and the Baring Brothers type thing. But um, Alexander Baring was responsible for organising the Mississippi Purchase, which basically doubled the size of the United States and expanded massively the geography of slavery across the south of the United States. And he made a, an awful lot of money, about a million pounds, even in that money then at that time, with that. And with that, he bought several properties and then uh, bought up a lot of land and got a lot of political power, as did his relatives. But um, the reason I bring this up is because the person I um, walked with on this walk, although actually he didn't get a visa, so we had to do it online, which is another interesting twist to the tale, the, you know, the way he got treated by the British authorities. Um, he is, um, got, he's got such a fascinating story because he's in the top right-hand side there. 
his name is Dr. Ibrahim Asek, and he is from Senegal. He's based in Senegal and Louisiana. And it was so interesting to hear how he came to research that history, because he was basically a school teacher. He went to Louisiana on an exchange. He went to a museum. He heard an old blues song, and he immediately thought, hang on, this is an old, a sad old banjo song from Senegal. He recognised it as being from the ancient region of Senegambia, which is where, as he later discovered, the vast majority of enslaved people in Louisiana came from Senegambia, the area between Senegal River and the Gambian River. Um, he then started looking into the ways in which enslaved people shaped Louisianan culture and society, the Br'er Rabbit stories, African, um, from, from um, a particular region, uh, the tortoise stories, the expressions, the okra, the gumbo soup, the grits, the, uh, as they're known in Louisianan cuisine, which is uh, basically couscous, and um, all of those things. And I think it's really important to ask, you know, what are the limitations of ourselves as researchers, and why is it so important to connect with experts and expertise um, across continents to join these stories together. That's all I want to say about that really, except that he then went and became the researcher for Whitney Plantation, which is the only plantation in Louisiana which tells the story of the plantation from the point of view of the enslaved. So he's done a great thing, he's absolutely amazing, brilliant. Anyway, just to sort of finish up, because I think you've been listening to me for a very long time. Um, it's important to understand that with this history, it's sensitive history, there's trauma on one side of that history, there is resistance and hostility and denial on the other side of that history. And that's why we do need to have emotionally intelligent ways of addressing it and talking about it. But the countryside is kind of key to all this, I feel, because it, although it is a, site of, a proven site of rural racism, it's also a site of healing and therapy and well-being and uh, it's a very important space which uh, is to be shared and enjoyed by, by everyone. Um, as one of my fellow workers said, oh, you know, Britain needs therapy and <laughs> the countryside is really brilliant therapy. Um, but it's helpful, I think, given the culture war, to look at colonial history in relation to working class history. It's also quite productive intellectually, very productive intellectually. It's important to think about what this history means, and it's important to work with researchers across continents to collaborate uh, and, and also to do all of this work in a respectful way. That's why I like commissioning creative pieces, poems and short stories and so on, because it thinks about, again, what the history means. And it honours those who don't have uh, strong voices or a strong presence in the archive. Uh, I just wanted to finish again with the words of Martin Luther King, because I, I think it's a really important that organisations, especially where they're white-led organisations, are conscious of the fact that there is a need for courage and to take responsibility um, and to drive uh, this 
change, this positive, beneficial change forward. And I was reminded of what Martin Luther King had said about failure of courage. It really doesn't help if we have a failure of courage. Uh, and he said, many sincere white people in the South privately oppose segregation and discrimination, but they are apprehensive lest, it be publicly, lest they be publicly condemned. And I think it's just to finish off and just end by saying that it's important to see culture war for what it is, to think about its varied historical origins and to take responsibility um, and, and keep doing this kind of work, basically. And I'll stop there. Many thanks to Corinne Fowler and to the Raphael Samuel History Centre who convened and recorded this event. Professor Fowler's book, The Countryside, Ten Walks Through Colonial Britain, will be published by Penguin Ellen Lane in 2023. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.